Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs who make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time. I'm Adam York, along with Jim Sessa. And in today's episode, we feature the Pixar classic, Wally. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and the specs. A high watermark of digital animation, this prescient vision of a dystopian future is packaged within a dazzling pop science fiction love story, making for an urgent fable for our troubled millennium. It's the 29th century and humans have long since fled Earth for outer space, leaving Wally, the last functioning trash compacting robot, to go about the work of cleaning up a pollution-choked planet, one piece of garbage at a time. When he meets Eve, a fellow automaton sent to detect plant life, the pair are launched on an intergalactic quest to return humanity to Earth. Transporting us simultaneously back to cinema's silent origins and light years into the future, Wally is a soaring ode to the power of love and art to heal a dying world. This movie came out in 2008. It is 98 minutes long in color, 2.39 to 1 aspect ratio, and if you're following along at home, this is spine number 1161. This only came out in 4K, right? On Criterion? Yes, yeah. It was uh, kind of, I think, a surprise to many people because uh, it's the very first Disney-owned film that right. has appeared on the Criterion Collection. That makes a lot of people hopeful that there's going to be more, um, although I think it eventually came out that uh, Andrew Stanton, who wrote and directed this uh, film, had actually made the request to Disney to license this film to Criterion. Hmm. And the big difference was, I think the original 4K release did not have Dolby Vision or HDR10+, and oh. so they did a, a upgrade to that from a print perspective. Um, and then, of course, all the special features that were not really included in the original right, right. Disney 4K release. But it's been released by 4K on Disney. It's available on 4K on uh, Disney+. Plus. You can watch it there. But yeah, Criterion, I think, you know, of course, puts it in a nice package. The booklet that's in it's really nice because it has the, almost has made it look like a three-ring binder. Uh, and has pages of script, his handwritten notes. So mm-hmm. really cool to see uh, to see that. As as always, Criterion does a really great job with the packaging. Yeah, I like the cover for this, which is basically Eve and Wally, but kind of made from trash. There's a scene in the movie where Wally kind of makes Eve out of trash. Yeah, but it's not. It is not that, but it's in that style. Yeah, I remember seeing this movie in theaters. This was probably my all time favorite. Uh, yeah, Pixar movie. Same. And I mean, it makes it perfect to be in the Criterion Collection. It's such a cinematic film. It's one of the handful of Criterion movies that was shot at the two, um, 2.35, like the anamorphic aspect ratio. Mm. A lot of the other Pixar movies are not shot that way. And um, Roger Deakins, who is an Oscar-winning cinematographer, known more for the work he does with the Coen brothers, but he also did Skyfall and um, a handful of other films. He did 1917 most recently that... Um, you know, it was a great that kind of that one shot uh, looking film. Uh, anyway, he consulted on this and you especially watch the beginning of the movie. It has a little bit of that Roger Deakins feel of the, you know, the kind of, I mean, obviously the barren landscape, but just the lighting and everything. They spent a lot of time doing that. Um, and there's a couple episodes of uh, the podcast that Roger Deakins and his wife, James Deakin do called Team Deakins. But it's a podcast they started during um, the pandemic. And there's at least one or two episodes they talk about Wally. I think they have Thomas Newman on who did the uh, score for this. Oh, yep. And then they have another one where they have, I don't remember his name, but he's like a visual effects artist for Pixar and they talk about Wally and, and a couple other movies that they worked on. Yeah, I think they were just on the Criterion uh, YouTube channel where they have 
Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't watched that yet. The the closet picks. Yeah, that's uh, those are uh, those are great videos. Would love to get a chance to go into that closet. It'd be like that show Supermarket Sweep where they just like pile everything off the shelf into their cart. I would take everything. Yeah. One of the reasons I think why I like this movie so much, or what drew me to it initially, is I'm a huge fan of the movie Short Circuit. Um, Johnny Five, Mm -hmm. the robot. There's a pretty similar look. Yeah. Um, I think in in doing some research at Andrew Stanton said that it was a coincidence that uh, we can get into it a little bit later, but how did he kind of come up with the look and feel of Wally? But they do look similar, especially the their heads look a lot like that movie is really great. There's a lot of that humor in Wally that's similar to mm-hmm. Short Circuit. Andrew Stanton took a lot of influence from Buster Keaton, uh, Charlie Chaplin to kind of add that because it's essentially, a, for the most part, it's a silent film. Yeah. Um, with sound effects, the kind of vocalizations from Wally himself, but it's a silent film, so it relies a lot on that physical humor. Even even when Eve shows up, there's still a lot of that. He's getting struck by lightning, opening the umbrellas, and just him falling. Eve kind of shooting him or hitting him, and he flies into the side of his uh, little house there. So, have we done a silent Criterion film? We haven't yet. We haven't done like a was M silent? No, that was that that was uh, Fritz Lang's first movie that he used sound in. So, but it was it was still a good right, right. Uh, example of that. But I think um, we'll have to do a silent film at some point on this, which will be great to. Have to talk about. Uh, we do have Safety Last. I have Haxon, which is a silent film, but I don't think I could watch that again. That was kind of rough to get through. But yeah, you said you didn't watch the commentary for this? I did not. So there's two commentaries. One is with the director, Andrew Stanton, and he did mention that the crew watched a lot of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin movies to get a sense of how to do good storytelling without dialogue. And he did say specifically, those two actors, uh, they they would look at like facial expressions or like body movements, how you can tell that story without actually speaking. And especially if you're, there's not even two characters because Wally is by himself for a long time. So they, they did draw on that. And then uh, they also wanted to make sure that in trying to relate robots to human movement to tell a story, they weren't just anthropomorphizing mm-hmm. the robots too much in in how they were created and one thing he specifically called out is he did not want wally to have elbows oh that lets you really yeah, express yeah, yeah. yourself a lot easier with your arms but yeah. then he's he's too human um so they they really stuck to like certain lines as far as the animation goes to keep them as machines and not people that's interesting with the elbows thing yeah there's a great um at, at least to kind of understand buster keaton more there's uh, if it's still out there there was the great youtube channel every frame of painting that hasn't been around for years but mm-hmm. um they did a really good um one of their videos was on buster keaton um and his kind of comedy and when you go watch that video you'll watch like it's almost like clip after clip after clip you're like i've seen that in a movie it's just the classic kind of physical comedy that he does uh yeah one i think of um because we always have to reference psych on this podcast that uh <laughs> There's uh, the episode of Psych where they go back to that Western town that Lassiter. Yeah. Um, at, you know, I forget what the actor's name who's in that. Um, and um, but there's the 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 front of the house falls down. Right. And they used it in the opening sequence for years after that. That's a Buster Keaton gag. Right. Like through the window. Yep. Yeah. And like he almost was killed <laughs> in that <laughs> because it was an actual front of a house falling on him, and he just had to get it timed right. There's many of those things where he's like jumping off of a train or he's jumping into a car off of a roof and they're all practical effects and, and, and pretty f- impressive. But 
getting to the like physical comedy side of things, how did he do that and express a story without, you know, being able to say anything was, was pretty impressive. Every time you bring up safety last, I always think that's Buster Keaton, but it's not. That's Harold Lloyd. Yeah, Harold Lloyd. Yeah. Um, but similar genre and stuff. Yeah, and that, that movie is famous for the, um, he's hanging off the clock. Yeah, that's on the cover of the, the Criterion edition. Which is a great, uh, I don't know if they do every frame of painting on that one, but there's a good, that, that's a good composite shot where he's actually like only like three feet off the ground, mm, but mm-hmm. the way they shot it made it look like he was actually really high up in the air, but he wasn't. So yeah, good, good camera tricks there. Nice. And that old stuff. Well, I feel like we're kind of talking about the director anyway, so I feel like we might as well just delve into uh, the director. So Andrew Stanton, uh, as you called out, is the director of the movie. He's worked on a few other Pixar movies, I guess, in the past. Um, But I think this was the first he actually directed. He's written for Finding Dory, Finding Nemo, A Bug's Life. I guess Finding Dory came out after Wally, but Finding Nemo and A Bug's Life were both beforehand. And he's since gone on to work on a lot of other Disney movies as well. Yeah, Finding Nemo was the first uh, Pixar movie that he directed and wrote. So he did. Oh, he did Nemo. direct Finding yep. Nemo. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he uh, he did Finding Dory, and then he's directed like he directed John Carter. You know, a lot of people don't like John Carter. I didn't really watch it until a few years ago, and uh, I'll say I feel like all right, the story was a little a mess, but boy, the effects on that movie I feel like hold up. It still looks really really good. I never read the books that it was based on, The Princess of Mars or something like that. But yeah, I feel like a lot of people don't give it enough credit. I pretty much like that plus um, uh, what was the movie, uh, the other movie Taylor Kitsch was in? He was in a Marvel character or a DC character that he, he was in. He was in a oh, was X-Men he? movie. It was that John Carter and the other movie that he was in that kind of like tanked his, his career. <laughs> mm. Um, Going from Friday Night Lights and then uh, tried, tried, oh, um, he was also in Battleship. That movie was brutal. Oh, yeah. I never saw that one. Uh, it's terrible. Hmm. Um, I mean, like, if you like Transformers, um, and, like, I would say if you like... The first Transformers is, like, an okay action movie, knowing going in it's Michael Bay, and uh, knowing that we've done two Michael Bay movies on the Criterion, you know, we can't trash Michael Bay, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's more like if you like Transformers 4 or 5, you'd be watching Battleship. But, uh, yeah, no, one of the interesting things, and, um, I mean, Pixar's a it's obviously a really interesting animation studio and uh, the way that they do movies, like they really have always, at least in in the early days of Pixar would give these writers, directors like years uh, to work on it. So I think, um, I think as you might've mentioned that, that Stan had been kind of working on the idea for Wally, like while Toy Story was kind of wrapping up originally it was called trash planet. And I think from what I read, he, and what was in the, the booklet, actually, he had pretty much the first half of the movie is what we see. That's like pretty much, he had that really well done. The second half of the movie originally was, the idea was for it to be a little bit of like a Planet of the Apes style, uh, you know, kind of Spartacus kind of movie where it's like he was getting the robots to rebel against these alien life forms which turn out to actually be humans that have devolved over the course of 700 years into like gelatinous blobs basically. But I think they, you know, certainly took it to a much... uh, much better thing. I mean, I obviously remember when this movie came out, there was a fair amount of like social commentary around this because one, you have an environmental aspect of the movie, like humans have pretty much destroyed the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much trash and everything, it, it can't sustain life, so they leave. And then you just sort of have like, you know, a commentary a little bit on like people just sort of sitting in their chairs with 
computer screens in their face all the time. And then, of course, like just becoming these big, barely able to walk, you know, kind of blobs. So what's interesting is, of course, Steve Jobs owned Pixar up to this time when the movie was on. And the iPhone came out in, first iPhone came out in 2007. So this came out in 2008, right? Mm -hmm. So um, obviously they work on these movies for years to do them. So Andrew Stanton mentioned Jobs, of course, was showing everyone the iPhone probably even before it was announced and released. And Andrew Stanton's impression of that was like, oh, this is going to just result in everybody walking around with a computer screen in their face, which he then took. And that was the inspiration for that vibe of um, oh, the chairs, uh, of the chairs yeah. and the screens in their faces and everybody being able to do those things. And it's really, hmm. um, it's kind of really interesting that in 2008, there's so much of that kind of came true. I mean, we yeah. could, you could say, oh, hey, like, He's thought they're saying like computer do this and you have Siri and, and Alexa, but obviously like computer do whatever is going back to Star Trek. So it's not like it's an original idea. One of the bonus features on the Blu-ray disc, not on the 4K disc, is I think they're called like prophecies is the section and it's stuff from Wally that kind of like came true. Oh, nice. Some of it's like very minor things like touch screens and that kind of stuff. But yeah, they do get into like a couple bigger aspects like that, environmental and and all of that. So there's two commentary tracks. One is with Andrew Stanton, and then the other is with Bill Wise, who's a character supervisor, Lindsay Collins, who was the co-producer, Derek Thompson, who was a story artist, and Angus McLean, who was the directing animator. So it's the four of them together. And one of the things that they were talking about as far as like the dystopian nature of the movie is when you start out, Earth seems like the dystopia because it's full of trash and it's kind of falling apart. And when you first get to the Axiom ship, it's like, oh, here's the utopia. But then as that progresses and you realize like, oh, wait a minute, to your point, like humans have kind of devolved. They have like no control over what's going on. You start to think like, perhaps this is the true dystopia is Mm -hmm. what's on the ship and Earth really wasn't. And by the time they get back at the end of the movie, Earth is kind of being set up to become the utopia that the ship never was. So they kind of like play with that throughout the movie subtly. That kind of shift wasn't really obvious to me the first few times I've watched this movie. But you really do get the sense of that humans have no control over their lives anymore. One of the other bonus features is a series of like promo by and large videos Mm -hmm. that were meant to play in the background throughout the movie, but you don't actually see these, but they have them in the special features. And I don't know if this was called out somewhere else, but the original timeline of the ships leaving Earth was only supposed to be five years. So they were supposed to be gone for five years while the trash gets cleaned up. They're gone for 700 years. Yeah. Like when I was thinking about that, there's a whole section of this timeline that would have been real interesting if you're on this ship and it's year six and you're like, wait a minute, we're supposed to go home last year. What's going on? Were there revolts? Like, what went on in those first yeah. <laughs> couple of years when, when people are realizing, hey, we're not going home until they finally get to the point where people don't even remember Earth anymore? They're not even thinking about it. They also mentioned that the ship was supposed to go to the Kuiper Belt, um, which is really kind of where, like, Neptune, the orbit of Neptune to, I guess, the furthest reach of, like, Pluto's orbit, that whole, like, section in there. That was their original destination. But if you watch in the movie, when Wally gets to that ship, there's like a gas cloud behind them, which is not out at the edge of our solar system. So where did they actually end up? Unclear. So it seems like there's a lot of things that have just happened that 
it's not really the point of the movie, but like when you start to think about that, it's like, wow, humanity has really lost all control over their lives at this point. And they don't even, they don't realize it and they don't seem to care about it. Yeah, I feel like I have so many questions for <laughs> how, I mean, you could see the scale of the ship, like in the one scene, you can mm-hmm. see it's pretty big. Yeah. It's still like, I don't know, not going to hold probably even 10% of Earth's population. No, there were supposed to be a series of ships that all took off. I don't know if that was in one of the promo videos. It might be in the the original video that Wally like triggers when he's on Earth. He's just wheeling around and it like... That's how we as the audience find out what happened to Earth because it's on a promo video in the background. Mm. Um, and I think they show a couple different ships taking off, but we never see the other ships. So who kn- do they still yeah. exist? Yeah. Also, like, did everybody get to go on a ship? Did right. you have to pay to go on the ship? How much did it cost? Like, is, is this sort of a little bit of like, you know, knowing that this was run by, by and large, which again is a continuing theme through most Pixar movies that right. that... Um, in there just like pizza planets always uh yeah there is a pizza planet there's like yeah uh, a truck like a rusted out pizza planet yeah well there's even if you go if you look closely in the scenes when you're in little wally's little shed or house or whatever you want to call it there's a ton of pixar characters like there's like rex from toy story there's a bunch of the toys and stuff and things in the background but yeah like I, i just i wonder that too like what was the socioeconomics of getting onto that like the decision of that because it is a big company You've got Fred Willard, um, yep. you know, which also interesting aspect of this movie is that's the first time, and I don't even know if there has been after that, but there's that there's actually live action video in the Pixar movie. Everything has oh. always been animated up to that point, even the yeah. Hello Dolly clips. Well, in one of the commentaries, they were saying that because we saw Fred Willard live, in every clip of humanity, it's always live people then. So Hello Dolly is live people. It's the real right. movie. And there's a couple other clips where, again, where they're showing the ships taking off and they're kind of advertising the Axiom. Those people on the ship are real people. Mm -hmm. But then when we see them later, they're not. And actually, one of the little kids in one of those promo videos is Andrew Stanton's daughter. Oh, really? like slipped in the movie. Oh, nice. But yeah, it was a little jarring that you were seeing Fred Willard in real life. But to make it a little less jarring, all clips of humanity were always real people. And that was also kind of to emphasize, look how different humans are 700 years from now, because now not only are they just like gelatinous blobs, but they're also animated. Um, and it just emphasizes that difference between current humans and these futuristic, messy, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just interesting that they made the choice to do live action. And, and, and then, of course, yeah. and, and then, of course, you have Fred Willard in there. So it's different than having someone who is more of a serious actor kind of show up in there and, and, and have that. And I, I think it was just kind of interesting. You have the by and large logo and his podium looks very much like the podium that the president would mm-hmm. use. And the cast for this is interesting, too. So you have Ben Burt is Wally. So yep. Ben Burt being famous from Star Wars, doing R2-D2 famous sound designer essentially created the concept of sound design has won a handful of oscars eve is Alyssa knight who actually isn't a voice actor she's just a pixar employee who would occasionally record scratch tracks for films until they could get an actress in to uh to do the recording and her voice has appeared in a couple uh voice a couple characters in pixar films but they just liked her voice the her performance so they just kept it and didn't have to pay somebody to come in and do that Jeff Garland's the captain, and uh, John Ratzenberger yep. is the... I forget what his character's name is. John. 
yeah, John. Okay, yeah. And then Kathy, uh, Najimi, and then Sigourney Weaver's the voice of the computer, of course. So Yep. And that's really it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, and then, uh, you know, Thomas Newman did the music, and that plays a huge part of the, of the film as well. So uh, anything Thomas Newman does is, like, stands out as being a Thomas Newman score, like having done uh, so many movies like mm-hmm. American Beauty and uh, Six Feet Under. So but, there is one other voice, though, which is the voice of... So Sigourney Weaver did the ship's voice. Right, but the but autopilot. Auto, yeah, it has auto. his own voice, and that was just Macintalk, which was like the Mac speech-to-text oh, oh, really? program. There's definitely a, a fair amount of Apple connections Text in this speech. movie. Yeah, because there's the part where Wally gets recharged, mm-hmm. and the sound is the original Mac like boot-up sound. Yeah, And then uh, Johnny Ive actually helped design Eve. That makes sense. So yeah. Eve clearly looks like an Apple product, like an iPod, which, you know, Wally uses to play the video play iPod. Of, yeah, video yeah. iPod to play Hello Dolly and has some sort of like magnification screen that he pulls over it to be able to see it larger. So I think they said that magnification screen was kind of inspired by Brazil, which we reviewed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they do a lot of that weird Fresnel magnification. Yep. Yeah. But just, I, I was, I just kind of had a chuckle because I was sitting there going, like, man, he had a VHS tape that he has hooked up into a video iPod, like, how did he do that <laughs> that was just like even uh you know it's just a, a really funny choice of how they decided to pull those things together but you know cobbled it all together with wally so yeah i think andrew stanton was saying that his high school did hello dolly and oh, okay. so he specifically wanted to use the opening song the uh put on your sunday clothes the beginning of that song has that kind of like swell close your eyes and see it listen barnaby listen barnaby and they use that when they're like pushing in on earth in the beginning of the movie and that was really his original plan just for that one song Um, but then while he was looking at other scenes he had some other songs from the musical in his head and it kind of ended up becoming the whole theme of the movie. That was one of the things I really liked about Wally when it came out because that was one of the musicals we did in high school. It was the only musical where I was in the musical as opposed to just in the band. I was just like an extra in it, but it's a very different perspective when you're used to being, even in the band, you're still watching a show, but when you're in it, it kind of has a different mm-hmm. feeling to you and a whole different set of memories. So that's one of the musicals that... Were you like in the chorus part too? Yeah, in a couple scenes. Um, just in Why like, don't you take a minute here and give us a couple lines no, from... <laughs> no, but I would say, I think I still know the words for every song in this, oh, I'm sure, yeah. in this musical. You know, in high school, I think we were supposed to be basing ours off of the Carol Channing version, which is the original Broadway. Got it. What they show is the Barbara Streisand version. Which I don't think that movie did really well, right? Uh, I think it came out in 78. So I don't know like how well home video stuff was doing at that time, let alone like in the theater. It was one of the first movies to ever come out on VHS and Betamax. It might have had extra inflated sales because there wasn't really anything else out there at that time on VHS. But Walter Matthau, he plays the character of Horace in the musical with Barbara Streisand, and he played that same character in the Broadway version with Carol Channing. So that was kind of like a cool tie-in from the Broadway version to the movie version. I don't think we see him in the in any of the clips in Wally, but special place in my heart for that uh, musical. 
was reading through the the Wikipedia page and had kind of read through parts of where the sound sound design Foley work uh, always has interest me and if you have like the DVD or Blu-ray collections of the original Star Wars trilogy or the Indiana Jones trilogy, there's a there was has been a handful of like long special features on those, and those were produced like decades ago. Mm-hmm. But interviews with Ben Burt as he talked about just like making the sound effects. So like I'm a huge you know big Indiana Jones fan, so just kind of understanding how he made those things. Like every punch Indiana Jones makes is actually a baseball bat hitting a big pile of leather jackets and. <laughs> Indiana Jones's handgun is actually like a 50 caliber, like old, like 1930s Winchester rifle or something like that. So just how he came up with those things. Um, another really interesting one is um, the snakes slithering over each other in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they're in the Well of the Souls is actually Ben Burt running his fingers through his wife's macaroni salad. Ugh. So I was reading through just some of how he went about creating some of the sound effects for this. And one of the interesting ones was. You know, he went to Niagara Falls, and he had had uh, recordings from them for he had for wind. And um, the scene where Wally flees from the falling shopping carts, Ben Burt and his daughter, they went to a supermarket and placed a recorder in the shopping cart, and then they just crashed it around the parking lot and let it tumble downhill. <laughs> and to create Hal, who is the, the name of the cockroach, yes, the skittering, um, and he recorded the clicking caused by taking apart and reassembling handcuffs. So just like, it's always interests me that there's, you know, Every movie you watch, none of the audio is being recorded. Like again, this is an animated movie, so they have to create everything from scratch right. or just pull from a library of database. But even if you watch a live action movie, every footstep, every door being opened, all of those sound effects rarely are ever captured live on set. Even like you know gunshots, all those things are never recorded live. Exception being Michael Mann's Heat, which they actually placed microphones all around for the famous shootout scene that happens at the end of the movie. They placed uh, microphones all around hmm. that area to record to record those gunshots and whatnot. But yeah, really interesting. And of course, Hal the Cockroach, named after Hal being the uh, uh, the computer from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, they did mention that on one of the commentaries. They also said it was a combination of Hal from 2001 and then Hal Roach is the name of the creator of The Little Rascals. So it was like, oh, a, okay. a comp- nice. I guess they appreciated the little rascals and auto who's like the ship's steering wheel has that big red lens, which yes. is like the other reference. And I'm sure there's several 2001 yeah. references, but the, the scene, I think it's the captain. Um, he's like trying to stand up towards the end of the movie to like hit a button. He's like falling off his chair for the first mm-hmm. time. He's trying to stand up and they're playing that 2001 yes, the theme, theme as he's standing up, yeah. which is the same scene from the movie with the apes standing up. And just even the in Wally when, you know, he has the gets the plant and then he tries to take it back. And of course, Otto has this directive A113, which side note, A113 is another one of those Pixar things that's used in that number is used as license plates. It's used in like every Pixar film because it was, uh, I think, the room number at USC where a lot of the like John Lasseter and a lot of these guys, they would meet and do a lot of their original work in the studio. So it's kind of an right, ongoing right. reference to that. But he has the directive, and he, it, which is the classified part of, hey, Earth is actually literally trashed. You can't go back. 
but even the computer then preventing him from the human from being able to take the actions that he wants again. Very, right. very similar to 2001 Space Odyssey. Right, right. That's true. They were talking on the commentary about all this like music and sound effects and uh, not a lot of it, but some of it does occur when they're in space, like literally outside of the ship, Wally and Eve. And they said, you know, some some truly scientific people gave him a little flack about that because there's no sound in space. They joke like an alternate tagline that in space, no one can hear you sing. Like that would be like a yeah alternate title for the movie, which reminded me of the recent episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Uh, they, for the first time ever, did a musical episode of Star Trek. Oh, it was actually amazing. Reporting from engineering first, sir. Mr. Spock? The intermix chamber and containment field are stable. I'll get to the war core and assess its state when I'm able. Why? Where's that music coming from? The soundtrack is on Apple Music. I will add that to my library immediately. It's it called thrilling. Subspace Rhapsody is the oh, name God. of the episode. It's actually really well done. It's the cast of the show. Um, some of them actually can sing pretty well. Some of them? Well, <laughs> I would just... really sells it even more. I'm, I'm saying some of them because I feel like some of the recordings are not the actors singing. Oh, it's I think like most of them are, but I'm pretty sure there's at least one of the main characters who he even says in the episode, like, this is weird. I can't sing. And I think that's supposed to be a joke saying like, that's not actually him singing. Mm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Going back to how there's a couple scenes with how and like Twinkies, mm-hmm. but because of like branding, they didn't want it to be an actual Twinkie. So mm-hmm. that, quote Twinkie that he goes into only has two holes of cream and a real Twinkie has three holes of cream and Um, that was to differentiate themselves from nice Twinkie brand but they do use plenty of other real branding one example they gave was the cooler that Wally kind of throws a lot of interesting trash in that he wants to keep and he like buckles it on the back of him when he's zipping around earth it's a real igloo brand cooler and they got permission oh I I missed that that's cool yeah some product placement. Yep, yep. Speaking of the audio, I know you went through a lot of the sound effects, like Foley work. We talked about Hello Dolly. Put on your Sunday clothes is used in the mm-hmm. beginning of the movie. It's used throughout the movie. There's also the song It Only Takes a Moment, which is more of the the slow song that they play a lot when Wally and Eve are holding hands. Mm-hmm. And that is all that love's about and we'll recall when time runs out there's not a whole lot of non-score songs in this movie there's Levian Rose, uh, yeah. Louis Armstrong. That's the other kind of like Earth love scene. You talked about the shopping carts that's playing during that scene. Mm-hmm. There's a brief clip of Don't Worry, Be Happy. Which I, I saw on the IMDb page. I'm like, where is that? I don't, yeah, where is that? It's that. the Big Mouth Bass. That's in Wally's. Oh, 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 oh. Briefly yeah, plays yeah, that yeah. song. I'm sure they, they've had to pay a lot to just use that like two second clip. And then I think 
you know, other than the 2001 Space Odyssey theme, I think the only other song is Peter Gabriel's song. Yeah, he recorded for this. Yeah. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're coming down to the ground. There's no better place to go. We got snow upon the mountains. We got rivers down below. We're coming down to the ground. We hear the birds sing in the trees. And the lamb will be the pastor. We send the seeds out in the trees. When he watched Finding Nemo, he contacted Andrew Stanton or somebody at Pixar saying how he really liked that movie and he'd love to collaborate on something in the future. And that's how they got him uh, to do the ending song for so if this we, movie. If we, if we count this as a Disney movie, which was this Disney Pixar at the time or was this just Pixar? Ooh, that's a good question. We'll count it as a Disney movie because they own Pixar at this point. Can you name the other member of Genesis who has recorded and performed a song for a Disney movie, an animated Disney movie? Uh, did Phil Collins ever do it? Yeah. Do you know what the movie was? Ooh, let me think. Is it? A, it's an animated movie? Yes. Well, it wouldn't be Toy Stories, because those were uh, Randy Newman. Uh, Phil Collins. Do you want a hint? Yeah. It also begins with a T, like Toy Story would. Huh. I'm looking at my shelf of movies. Uh, if you own this movie, I would be shocked. Uh... No, I don't know. Tarzan. Oh, you'll be in I, I my heart. I don't know if I actually, yeah, yeah. It's not that. It's not great. I don't think I the ever saw Tarzan. Good. It's a good song. Yeah, I, I remember that a, song. Not a not a great movie. Yeah, Phil Collins. You know, he's got a couple good sleeper hits out there. Yeah, he's okay. He had a little bit of. I mean, Genesis. Uh, he had an okay solo career, I guess you could say. But yeah, really interesting. Just a side note, Phil Collins. Uh, I read his autobiography, which he narrated the audiobook, and he he read he read the audiobook. Did not really do himself just like not do himself justice, <laughs> but like he didn't really do himself give himself any favors in there because for the most part he kind of just comes off as a jerk <laughs> throughout most of his life. Really interesting, but most of his choices and the things he decided to do, uh, yeah, he's was kind kind of a jerk. So hmm. anyway, quick. That's interesting. Quick I'll have to. Well, no, it's a good story. His life story is really good. Very interesting. His approach to music and everything like that. But the the summary of his being a jerk is that he chose his career every time over his family yeah and that just repeatedly got him like i mean mismarried and divorced probably three times or more in like relationships with his kids but it's because he always chose his career over over his family so this kind of was a kind of running theme in his in his life so speaking of themes going back to peter gabriel so the song he wrote it's called down to earth mm-hmm. and it's used when they go back down to earth at the end of the movie but the melody for that song is actually sprinkled throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. So it's also used in the scene where Eve first gets to Earth. So again, she's come down to Earth and she's like zipping around for the first time. And then it's also used when she's zipping around outside of the axiom, like mm-hmm. in space. And they kind of called out that in the commentary too, that when Eve first gets to Earth, she has a directive. She's looking around to find life. But at after her first few scans, she kind of stops and then she just kind of zooms around for a bit. 
kind of like if you have, you know, you let your dog out in the yard for the first time after, you know, a couple hours and they mm-hmm. like zip around. I think those are called the, the zoomies. zoomies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they said there was an actual reason for that because, you know, Eve has only been on this ship and basically like a captive of that ship. She can't mm-hmm. really do much there. She has specific programming and specific areas that she can move around in and when she's on earth for the first time it's this sense of freedom there's this vast openness and she can finally just run as well fly as fast as she wants to so she kind of enjoys that taste of freedom for the first time Um, it goes back to that dystopian sense of the axiom you know it seems like it's futuristic and very clean and very friendly place but really it's very limiting and controlling in um, how you can live there hmm yeah yeah, I, I actually liked that scene a lot. It was kind of that moment of her just kind of going wild. I think there was a cool cool moment that I feel like always gets added into movies where people are flying. Like, it's, it happens. It did it in Superman where she, you know, she breaks the sound barrier. And there's kind of that moment of her, like, of her doing that. The, they do the little rings. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they also mentioned that, I think it's in one of the promo videos for the Axiom, that there's supposed to be half a million robots service robots on the axiom as well so that on earth that's probably the first time she's really been alone and not surrounded by other robots so she's enjoying that sense of privacy and being able to do what she wants instead of being controlled by the ship Hmm. one of the other real quote-unquote real people shots of the movie is when they're showing the wall of pictures of captains behind the current captain They kind of show the progression from the first captain all the way to the current captain. And you can kind of see how they get like shorter and like sloppier in their appearance until Mm -hmm. they get to the current captain. But all of those pictures of captains are actually Pixar employees, Pixar animators. Oh, really? Some of them are more true to what they look like than others, because a lot of them, they had to like stretch and squash the images to get them to look like they were Mm. changing their appearance over hundreds of years. But all of them are real Pixar employees. And then the names of the captains don't align with the person. So the names are one set of employees from Pixar and the pictures are another. So they tried to incorporate a lot of them into the movie. I guess I kind of have a rabbit hole to go down on that. So they've been in there for 700 years. Mm -hmm. Felt like there weren't enough captains to span 700 years. There weren't that many captains. I I mean, I don't know what the life expectancy of someone is in there at that point. but And then... There's no other human officers. There's no other human True. We people that he any. interacts with. So how does he become the captain? It had, do they have like a, you know, some kind of school that they go to or or something? Because clearly there's babies mm-hmm. and they're being taught. They're in some kind of preschool. And then, so how does he become the the captain? Like what? It was just an interesting thought I had of like how, he had to go to some kind of. Well, what's also interesting too is. His his uniform doesn't fit him. Yes, you can. They he puts it around like cape. So he's clearly using an. You know, they must have had a stock of uniforms, and who knows how old that thing is, uh, and who who it belonged to. So, you yeah. know, I just wonder like how did you? Yeah, you go to school and then you could become captain. And how do you train a future captain if there's nobody else in that room like learning or operating anything on the ship? One of the animators called out that when you're seeing the live footage of the captain in the old promo videos, the jacket he's wearing has four pockets, the captain's jacket, because it's a real jacket the person's wearing, but the animated version only has two pockets. And I think part of that is, to your point, like it's, it doesn't fit anymore. Right. So they had to kind of 
cut out some of the pockets, shrink it down a little. Yeah, I don't know if they would have like elections or something like that, or maybe it's more like uh, the foundation show on Apple where Empire is just a clone of the original Empire over years and years. They I just keep re-cloning Is that, is that a spoiler alert that you should No, no, no. That's, they go out of their way to make that clear okay. constantly. Empire is, there's four? Sometimes four, sometimes three. At different ages of his life, there's an old one, like a adult, a teenage, and sometimes a child. It's all the same. Mm-hmm. It's a clone of the same person, and they just always exist at that time period. The four of them together, like, run the entire uh, empire. But they are called hmm. the empire. Interesting. So the name of the person is Empire. Oh, weird. Yeah, it, that takes a lot of getting used to. Good show. It's got some cheesy moments, I would say. The book itself is not great, but the show is pretty I'd say it's probably one of, I don't know if this is true, Apple's like highest budget show. Really? It looks amazing. Yeah. Huh. I'll have to check it out. I, mean, I don't know I what else they, what other show would have a huge budget on Apple. So my other question is, you've got John and Mary and Mary's kind of, her screen's broken and she's kind of going around and John comes up and even Wally are out there kind of like going around when they're out in space mm-hmm. and they look and they recognize Wally and then their hands kind of touch and there's this moment of like, I feel like it implies that like, oh, hey, look, there's another human there that I can interact with and I can talk to. Right. My problem with that is like there's a bunch of kids. Where'd all so, the babies like, come from? So where'd all the babies come from if the implication is is that like yeah. people aren't paying attention to each other and they're not paying attention to each other for 700 years. There was like 20 kids in that classroom. So And they were all babies. Mm-hmm. They were like maybe six months old. Yeah. I'm going back to cloning on this. I feel like... Ah, I don't think cloning? That just doesn't seem like it makes sense. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the people all look very much alike. Any Pixar movie, the people look very much alike. Yeah. With the exceptions of like one or two people to make them look unique. But So uh, the people, there's a few scenes where you can kind of see a lot of people, but towards the end where they're all being like herded to the Lido deck when Wally and Eve are trying to get the plant back in the little container to bring the ship home. That specific scene, there's like thousands. There's a wide shot. You can see all the chairs going down. And uh, they mentioned that they were able to use Weta's Massive program. And Massive is the program that Weta originally built for Lord of the Rings for like the scenes of all the orcs oh, and okay. all the armies. And now it's used in almost every Marvel movie, the most recent Ant-Man movie, where you might see a scene of like thousands of ants. They're all being controlled by this massive software that lets huh. you animate a lot of things with little control. You don't have to yeah. like manually animate all those. To me, that was very surprising because that was 2008. I feel mm-hmm. like that's a long time ago to be using that software, but they weren't really doing a whole lot with it. They were just kind of herding all the humans along straight lines into that one area. Hmm. So Mary and John, they do kind of grab all the kids at that one point where the ship's tilting and all yeah. the kids coming down. And she says, John, get ready to have some kids. But they don't actually have kids. They're just kind of... Yeah. And nobody else seems to care whose kids those are. Yeah. Again, makes me feel like maybe they're just clones. I mean, you're right. Maybe they're clones. And that gets me to sort of a big part about this movie is, should they have returned to Earth? No, they're just going to mess it up again. It's it's two things they have. One, how the heck did a plant survive in a refrigerator that is... Also, by the way that they created is an old refrigerator, mm-hmm. like from the 50s mm-hmm. or 60s, where it's like almost like iron or uh, lead lined. Yeah. Um, with the way he he uses a uh, you know his little laser to open it up, 
no light in there. How does the plant survive in there? Because we know from Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull that like you can jump into a lead line refrigerator and survive a you know atomic bomb explosion. Correct. But you're a little plant. There's no light in there. So anyway, that's a pro- That's that's kind of well. A perhaps the door question. was not always closed. Maybe the door was open. And a recent and a storm. Yeah, I mean, okay, all right, all right. I'll let you have that. <laughs> I'll let know. you have that. That that's that's how that happened. But then you see how horrible Earth is, and he's like, oh, well, this little single plant that might actually just be like a weed right. is surviving, so let's go back to a planet that is filled with trash, mm-hmm. that there's no electricity, there's no power, there's no way to run anything. Like, How long do you think are they just living on that ship and then just coming back and like rebuilding? Because where did Wally was, he looked like he was, what, New York City? Yeah, I assumed it was yeah. New York. And because I don't know, it's also uh, tough to tell like the scale of how much he, like the area that he covered, but what are they going to do with all the trash? Not only that, the space, you can see Earth is covered in trash. Yeah. You know, Wally's covered in stuff as he leaves, including um, Sputnik, which is like the little last satellite that's stuck to him that he like knocks off. Like, why go back to Earth? It just seems like it was the wrong, uh, the wrong call. Yeah. They originally said that the animators on the commentary were saying that there's kind of these like conveyor belt machines that are very big that are near those stacks of trash. And those were incinerators. And it was supposed to be that the Wallies would stack everything up and then the incinerators would come along and incinerate all of the stack trash. Not that that's any better. Now you're just polluting the I mean, air. that's probably where the pollution came and just kind of, you know, created the... Yeah. But yeah, I mean, maybe Wally just doomed humanity to their death. They did state that the original ending of the movie, I think Andrew Stanton had called it out in his commentary that it was audiences were unclear at the end of the movie. Like, cool. I, is everyone going to die now that they just went back to earth and they can't live. And that's when they came up with that end credit animation. that kind of shows humanity rebuilding. Yeah, That's one of my favorite parts of this movie. I know it's stylistically, I would say it's my favorite part. They go as they're showing humanity rebuilding earth it progresses through art styles yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of that mimic cool. our growth through art. So they kind of went through like a Stone Age cave painting mm-hmm. style. Then they go to like the Fertile Crescent civilization, Egyptian hieroglyphics. Then they go into like a mosaic, Middle Ages, Impressionism, Pointillism. And then at the very end, that's kind of like an 8-bit computer style like through where they're like zipping through the credits. And all the while, as those styles progress, you can see humanity like planting crops and then like starting mm-hmm. to build things so it is very interesting but you do wonder have they learned any like nobody's there's no mental growth shown like do we know that humanity has learned a lesson are they mm-hmm. going to not just trash the planet again that's yeah. very unclear well interesting i mean you have also humans who have um 700 years away from the last humans that lived on earth so bring a very different perspective mm-hmm but then again, I mean, the other thing to consider is you've got two humans, three humans who on that ship, the captain and John and Mary, because right. I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure there's a couple other humans that now like seeing what was going on, like kind of have a mental, oh, like there's more to life than this. But I can imagine that there's humans that are on that ship that are like, yeah, I'm good. Like, uh, what? I don't want to get off. Like, I'm cool. So yeah, it would just be a very interesting. Um, it would be a really boring sequel, but it would be a really interesting sequel to like 
dive into the uh like i wonder if anyone's i would never read it but like i wonder if anyone ever did like a fan fiction kind of like what happened afterwards so there's a book called seven eves it's all one word seven eves and the very first paragraph of the book starts with the moon exploding oh man i think it's written by neil stevenson he writes a lot of like sci-fi cyberpunk books but the bulk of the book is humanity reacting to that knowing that hey we've got like 10 15 years before all the pieces of the moon crash into earth how do we like preserve humanity oh interesting they do kind of like a wally really um, 10 to 15 years how do they know like that would be they they estimate it there's different chunks of the moon but there's a couple big pieces that are really gonna like cause serious damage when they hit they have some time to work towards like getting some people off of the planet, but it's a very small amount of population. And there are other options. There's do you burrow down into the Earth's crust? Do you go into the ocean? So they explore a couple different options. You get to a certain point in the book and then it jumps like I don't know how long, like a thousand, couple thousand years after that. It's a smaller section of the book, but it's showing you what the result of all that was, what did happen to humanity. It really reminded me of like this post-credits, what, what is the situation there? Because even if humanity did rebuild, that trash is not going away. What did happen to humanity in the, at the end I don't of want to spoil it. <laughs> so there's a couple other little interesting tidbits uh, I was looking up. I have written, this is the second animated movie we reviewed, but that is not. Yeah. Uh, we did, this is the oh, first, yeah, yeah. the second. I'm sorry. Uh, we, the only other one we've done is Watership Down. Right, right. There's not a ton of animated films in the Criterion Collection. No. Fantastic Mr. Fox is stop animation. Yep, Fantastic Planet. Yep, Fantastic Planet. And I think there's a couple others. Yeah. Not, not a lot. But it's the second rated G movie we reviewed, because I think Watership Down was the other. That was rated G? Wasn't it? That was a pretty brutal movie. It, like, yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely I guess brutal. it would have been, it would have been. That was the 70s. So yeah, was... well, PG existed because like Raiders of the Lost Ark was PG and that was... Oof. So John Ratzenberger has had a voice role in 22 Pixar films. I'm not sure if he's been in everyone, but he's definitely been in the most uh, as the voice actor. I was also curious about the Lido deck. I feel like I heard that term uh-huh. on cruises I've been on and certainly a lot throughout this movie. And I'm like, what is... You've been on cruises? I've been on two? You don't really strike me as the cruise kind of person. Yeah, I don't know if I would go on more. I feel like they're very similar. I feel like your experience on a cruise would be very similar to uh, David Foster Wallace's experience (laughs) when he wrote uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Yeah, which yeah. is have you read have you read that i have not but i was thinking of reading that while i was on the cruise that's amazing uh i don't know it's hard to find like as a free article anywhere but uh that's it's hilarious yeah it's it's definitely fun if you don't drink it's probably not going to be fun i feel like people just drink a lot on a cruise ship and if you were that's because there's nothing else to do <laughs> yeah i mean there's swimming there's some activities i was on some that had like escape rooms the flying tunnel things that I, I did those that kind of stuff is interesting but for one trip if you want to do it multiple times i feel like if you don't enjoy those few things you're not going to get a lot of variety where was your cruise too like the bahamas yeah 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 but anyway the word lido is italian and it refers to like a seashore or a beach um some place where people gather to hmm. swim 
So on a cruise ship, the Lido deck is usually centrally located. It's usually an outdoor area, and it's where the passengers would find the pool, the hot tub, lounge chairs. And in the ship, in the Axiom, that's the big pool is yeah. there, and that's where all the lounge chairs end up like at the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's perfect, too, having all of that stuff and everyone's just in their chairs. And like, we had a pool? I didn't know we have a pool. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of make you wonder, like, all of that stuff, what was it even being used for at that point? If they were 700 years into the future, the Axiom, if it's owned by, by and large, by and large is a corporation. So you're not on this ship as, like, a goodwill gesture. You probably had to pay money to get on that ship. So 700 years in the future, your great, great, great grandchildren mm-hmm. are still on that ship. Like, who's paying for that? Why are they letting these? That's what I said. Like, who got to go on this ship? How much did it cost? It's all run by a corporation. It wasn't a government that was, like, running this. So Maybe it was know. employees of the company? I don't know. I mean, maybe. But even then, like, yeah, you know, you just think about the overall cost of maintaining that. Um, whatever fuel, however, what kind of fuel that they've used yeah. to man that ship for. 700 years. And it has yeah. some kind of warp drive that it can blast itself right back to Earth pretty quickly. Right, right. That's just the one part I have about that is, like, I think there's a whole, I'm sure someone's written articles about it and, like, how did you end up on the ship? And if there were, mul- knowing that there was multiple ships, which I kind of missed, okay. But even still, like, you got to pay for a ticket. Yeah. You know, but we don't know like, that they survived. Is there steerage? Either. Is there a version of the Titanic story, but with the ship? Right. So. But that could be why it said they were supposed to be in the Kuiper Belt, but then they actually were out by a gas cloud somewhere. Perhaps that was they needed to refuel the ship because they were only planning on five years of fuel. But they were out there for 700 years. How do you get fuel? Maybe they went out to one of these gas yeah. clouds and used that for mm. hydrogen, helium, fuel. It would be surprising. I know this is a Pixar movie, so it's not supposed to be dark, but it'd be very surprising if all those ships survived. What piece of technology that was built to last five years lasts 700 years? Apparently an iPad does, or an iPod, um, because Wally was using an iPod yeah. 700 years in the future. How did he get his battery to, to run on that? I have a, an iPod from like five years ago. I can't get the battery to start. So <laughs> I actually found an iPod, iPod, iPhone four, iPhone four. So how, how old is that? Like, uh, well, we get like one a year. So yeah. yeah, it's about 10 years ago. Yeah. I found one of those in our basement and it, and wow. it booted up. I was even able to find the cord for it because it wasn't the lightning cable. It was plugged into a USB port and all of a sudden it, it tur- you can't like use it. Maybe but. I'll give you my iPod so you can get it to turn on. Yeah. One other piece of trivia I thought was pretty interesting. I think this was with Andrew Stanton. I thought he was going to be talking about the design of the chairs, but what he was actually talking about was Wally's design. Uh, While they were trying to figure out his construction, I know we talked about short circuit, which seemed to be coincidental, but there was a man, I think his name was Brad, whose wife, Elizabeth, was a paraplegic. And they liked to do outdoor hiking and activities together, but he could not physically move her around, especially like on trails. Mm-hmm. So he designed a special like all-terrain chair for her that had these like tank treads on them hmm. that he was then able to like push around much more easily outside. And for a certain period of time, he actually built and sold these chairs for other people. 
at the time that Wally was coming out, he wasn't still making the chairs, but Pixar was able to get a hold of him, actually had him come into Pixar and demonstrate how he had built the chair, how it worked, how mm. you would get around with that. And they kind of based a lot of Wally's movement designs off of how Brad had built that chair. So I huh. thought that was kind of interesting. If I could find a link to that, I'll throw that in the show notes um, along with all of our other links. So if you're ever interested in anything we talked about, please do check out the show notes. Uh, we put a lot of work into that. That's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes in your podcast app of choice. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. really helps the podcast be found by other folks. We're on Instagram at Criterion on the Couch. Feel free to send us a DM or comment on a post if there's a film you would love us to chat about. Otherwise, we'll see you soon. I'm Adam Yurick with... Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.